I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your Anglo-Catholic co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your Roman Catholic co-host, Dean Della. <laughs> oh, boy. Look, we're, both, we're just both Catholics on this one now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are. That's exactly right. Um. Okay. I'm sure that probably rubs people the wrong way. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it does or not. Well, uh, we'll get to the bottom of it, I guess, in this episode. Um, today, uh, we're talking with Tony Hunt and Father Caleb Roberts, who are both co-editors of the Hour magazine, um, which is a really neat uh, Anglican, Episcopalian, Anglo-Catholic magazine. You can find it at thehourmag.com. Um, man, it is a very cool magazine. And um, as a as a newer Episcopalian, I've learned a lot from reading it, uh, for sure, about uh, Christian socialism and all of the very, uh, I don't know, interesting, but under-discovered characters of uh, Anglo-Catholic Christian socialism. So uh, if that's something you don't know about, but you'd like to, you're really in for it in this episode. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think one thing, too, we talk about this on in the episode itself in the interview, but it's worth saying at the top here, I think what I really like about the hour in particular is there's lots of different Christian lefty kinds of publications that are emerging in the world, and that is really fun to track and to see. But the hour has this uh, really kind of fascinating niche that is not just theological, but also artistic, like it's trying to carve out a certain unique vision. And uh, man, all I can say is it's a welcome addition to the wide expanding, uh, hopefully exponentially expanding world of uh, Christian media in general. The Christian media cinematic universe that's just <laughs> mostly magazines on the internet, but it's great. All right, let's get right to the interview then. Today on the show, we have Tony Hunt and Caleb Roberts, who are the editors of The Hour magazine. Um, whenever we have new folks on the show, we usually just leave it up to them to explain who they are and what their project is. So, uh, Tony, Caleb, go for it. What's The Hour all about and who are you both? Why are you here? The Hour is a, a uh, online magazine, um, really trying to, to hone in on the Anglican socialist tradition, but um, maybe not, uh, not like a, a theory rag per se. Um, we, we got started really to try to bring to bear um, theory matters on really practical concerns of parish ministry, um, and that will spill over into you know actual praxis or whatever. But uh, but a lot of it had to do with simply um, frustration with um, simplistic ways of approaching issues within the church, if that makes any sense. I, I had Tony start out so he could, I could hear him say magazine in that beautiful Minnesota voice that he does. That was mainly <laughs> the vibe there. I, yeah, I just add to that, we had that practical focus and then obviously wanted to kind of an outfit that had a specific kind of editorial angle that we'll probably go into uh, later on. So a, a targeted editorial direction and a focus on uh, what I would call like the, ma the material aspects and conditions of parish ministry. Mm. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Do you guys want to say a little bit about who you are in respect to the magazine as well? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take this one. I'm we're both co-editors. That's kind of our titles. Um, as far as personally, I uh, I serve as the rector, which is like the 
head priest, senior pastor, whatever, uh, the rector of Grace Episcopal Church here in Ponca City, Oklahoma. It's a small town uh, just south of the Kansas border uh, here in Oklahoma, which is my home state. I'm from here and I've bounced around beforehand, but uh, as of last summer, I returned to my home state with my wife and three children. Yeah, I'm I'm Tony Hunt. I'm up in Minneapolis, um, currently a postulant um, uh, for the priesthood, which just sort of means a, um, a a studying stage, if you will. I'm in seminary, um, being able to to direct some of my own studies uh, in in unique directions, even though I'm an MDiv. So that's a lot of fun over at Luther Seminary. And uh, my family and I live in Northeast Minneapolis. That's great. Uh, it's fun to hear about you folks and about the magazine for sure. Matt and I have been reading it here and there for a while now. And I think I feel like I'm always corralling Matt into talking about Catholic stuff just because that's <laughs> my world and what I'm all about and uh, reading a lot of. But I'm excited that now we finally have some good Episcopal representation. Matt can check that <laughs> off of his uh, his obligations list. So um, tell the home office. That, yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> I've done this for them. <laughs> so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. You know, the the hour comes out of a sort of broad tradition of Anglo-Catholic Christian socialism. And I think that's also a really fascinating piece of uh, the U.S. socialist tradition. Maybe we can talk more about that later. Uh, what is it that draws you both to that tradition of Anglo-Catholic Christian socialism? And, and what is it? How would you describe that tradition? What's it all about? Uh, how does that kind of inform what you guys are up to? I'll, I'll show my age and um, and and everything here and, and say that my initial draw, um, maybe I don't want to reveal this. Um, <laughs> my initial draw into the tradition was radical orthodoxy um, at the time, um, which when I was reading it uh, said that it was all about Christian socialism. And uh, as someone trying to pull away from the sort of conservative pol politics of his Pentecostal upbringing really resonated with me. Um, it's just that uh, over time, I came to, to believe that that was not actually a, a socialist trajectory in, in any way um, and tried to start diving deeper uh, a bit on my own, um, kind of in, 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 in protest against what uh, I had been initially drawn into. Um, with the magazine, we, I, I know that we, we have the, this impression that we're um, scholars of history and all that, but that almost happened by accident. In our very first issue, we we posted a, an old essay from the 70s from Kenneth Leach, um, and we had um, a loose understanding of the fact that Anglo-Catholic socialism existed, but we really only got that from having read like broad overviews of Anglican history, right? They'd mention it, people talk about something like the, the, the slum ritualists or um, some of these things, but there isn't actually as much detail in these surveys as you might think. And 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 it just so happened that I uh, had an opportunity with a professor at Luther to do an independent study on some of the actual original socialists and uh, started reading them, looking more deeply into the history and found myself quite fascinated by how diverse and frankly, much more radical tradition it is than one gets the impression of when they hear just modern people talking about it. People talk about um, uh, Anglican socialism as if really all it means to be is um, a paternalist Tory um, interested in uh, English values and um, social hierarchy, but like being good ones, right? Being generous. Um, but it, it, it's, it's a diverse tradition, but even like the, the guild socialists that uh, some of the modern people will draw on, they, they want to do completely abolish the wage system, hand over um, uh, all things that you work with to the workers themselves. It was it was a pretty uh, intense tradition in its own way, in and in contrast to the way that it's presented in in the circles that I initially heard about it. Yeah, yeah, uh, I would second all that from Tony. I would just add for myself, um, my what drew me to it was you know I am kind of an old book nerd and uh, I started you know, seeking out and collecting kind of old Anglican titles that are out of print. And if you if you start digging uh, down that uh, that hole, you'll find that there are just these Anglo-Catholic socialists that are referenced, whether in the kind of survey books that Tony mentioned or just the names. I actually remember stumbling upon the 
Kenneth Leach piece that we posted in the most recent issue that I think might come up uh, later. But I found that just like on Google, Google Docs or something back in like 2013. And like, what in the world is this? And it was like this photo scan typewritten thing. So, I mean, I, I it was kind of a shiny object for me, at least a little bit. Uh, but beyond, beyond that, I really resonated with how, uh, particularly in the turn of the 20th century, um, this tradition of Anglo-Catholic uh, socialism was was very particularly rooted in uh, a certain theological uh, persuasion, a liturgical persuasion, and it wasn't just like a generic religiosity that then found a kind of euphemistic expression in politics. Like they actually had very detailed material analysis for their time alongside really, uh, really high level um, theological sophistication as well. They were kind of firing on both cylinders, at least at their best. And that really appealed to me early on. That's so cool to hear you guys talk about that. Um, you know, what drew you into doing the magazine and kind of what put you on, on the path that you're on now? Um, you know, um, it strikes me, Dean did mention a minute ago that, you know, we're usually talking about Catholic stuff and now we're talking about, you know, Anglican stuff. But um, before we get any further, maybe you could just uh, flesh out some of the terms for us because I imagine that uh, some of our listeners probably don't know what, you know, Anglican, Anglo-Catholic, Episcopalian all might mean. <laughs> they might kind of sound, mm-hmm. seem like uh, insider language, which I guess they are. So just as like a matter of setting up the rest of the conversation, uh, can you all walk us through what some of those terms mean and how they relate to the hour? Yeah, Tony? Yeah, so uh, Anglicanism, broadly speaking, w- would be um, a host of churches that are directly related to the Church of England uh, in the shape it became after it uh, formed in the English Reformation, um, having uh, right around the same time as the Protestant Reformation, right? We had our own Reformation focused on King Henry VIII, and there's a lot of uh, history that we don't really need to go into, but just understand that uh, there are now um, churches in lots of different parts of the world that have a relationship with the Church of England and through its worship and history, um, a relation to each other. Uh, and and so that's Anglicanism broadly speaking. Um, Anglo-Catholicism, the, the term really comes from the early 19th century. Uh, there was a group in Oxford that uh, conveniently was called the Oxford Movement. And uh, uh, this little group of, of people wanted to assert that the Church of England was in fact um, a Catholic church. Um, it was part of the church Catholic and they um, took some stances against uh, what they saw as extreme Protestantism and tried to reincorporate practices like private confession and um, a little bit of higher liturgy as that went on. Um, what's significant for the stuff that the hour is in doing is that they had a really adversarial stance against the state. Um, um, the very first tract for the time, the tract for the times are um, a, a group of writings that the Oxford movement published in order to spread their beliefs right about Anglo-Catholicism. And the, the very first one was protesting against the fact that uh, dioceses were being redrawn in Ireland um, against the wishes of the church. And, and what they asserted was that uh, the bishops uh, and the church through them had authority completely independent of the state. And uh, although they were very much in favor of um, England, the Church of England being the state church, if it were going to break the principles that they thought were key for the church, they were ready to assert um, the independence of it. And that attitude came to be really significant for the generation of Anglican socialists who came after them, um, some of whom, uh, and actually many of whom, were were willing to actually make movement for the Church of England to be disestablished. Um, they thought that its connection to power what prevented it from supporting the types of policies that the kingdom of God demanded. And you can see the lingering effects of the Oxford movement in this adversarial stance. However, you don't see as much of the Oxford movement in the socialists as you might think, um, because the, the Oxford movement tended to be quite conservative, both theologically and politically. Um, even where they were radical in their charity, in their overall um, politics, they they tended toward the traditional and established. 
it was really through um, the, the influence of F.D. Morris, a, a theologian, sort of semi-liberal theologian of the same time, and then through um, liberal Catholicism, uh, sort of started by Bishop Charles Gore and a group of friends. It was through this liberal Catholic tradition that you got an alternative type of Anglo-Catholicism. And so they were running against each other. It's not that all the Anglo-Catholics were, were socialists. In fact, many of them, most of them weren't uh, and did not like the radical political, political direction. Some went. Um, so there's a liberal and a conservative tradition right around the turn of the 20th century. Um, and that's that's sort of like the the golden era of Anglo-Catholic socialism. Uh, it's really cool to hear you spell that out a little bit for me. I think uh, I have some history with the Episcopal Church uh, in particular, which is, you know, its own kind of thing, I guess, uh, in that big story you were just telling um, and got married in it and so on. But I think, uh, well, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how you negotiate that tradition. One thing that when I started seeing the hour, I was really intrigued by it on the one hand, and then also kind of um, I have to admit a bit hesitant, I guess, just because I, I was concerned that maybe it was sort of a, a Trojan horse for the radical orthodoxy kind of uh, conservative brand of all of that. And uh, I've been really pleased to, to see that that's not the case. And I'd be curious to just hear you talk a little more, both of you, about uh, negotiating some of the, I don't know, saying the conservative and left wing elements doesn't seem like the right metric, but maybe you know what I mean, you know, those kinds of things that feed into that tradition. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing, there's quite a lot that we could say on that. I mean, just to pick an anecdote uh, at random, um, one of the things that Tony and I have tried to resist doing from from day one uh, is, you know, there's this kind of discourse, I'm sure you all have seen it, where uh, particularly in more in more quote unquote Catholic kind of discourse, you can kind of talk about uh, liturgy or sacraments as like doubles for politics that just by simply engaging in certain kinds of explicitly religious practices, ergo, you are you are doing something in the world. It's like, oh, well, the sacraments involve bread and wine and that's material. So now we're, <laughs> you know, and, and so we in, in that you can see not so much in the Oxford movement people Particularly, but in the way that we, in the in the discourse that we were observing when we were uh, thinking about this magazine, that was precisely one of the things that we wanted to avoid: the kind of um, theological uh, um, replacement of politics. Uh, if that makes any sense at all, Tony, does that makes that vibe? Yeah, and, and it's it's I, I I'm assuming it's one of the reasons that we've often found it difficult to find writers <laughs> is that um, it's it's pretty mainstream to uh, to center um, Anglican like liturgical things as as stand-ins for politics um, uh, you know like you the the sacrament is is super communist and so we're doing a communism when we do the Eucharist and and we, we <laughs> We're not like we're not actually trying to say anything bad about doing the sacraments or liturgy or its actual formative effects. All those things can have their own um, independent truth, but the way that it works in the discourse, um, I think uh, and we think, keeps us from doing actual politics in the way that we talk, and we wanted to avoid that. And uh, and. If there's one thing that uh, gets the Anglo Catholics a little nervous is if you're like, stop talking about the liturgy. Please stop mm. talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe as far as negotiating it, I mean, I think this might might continue to come out in our conversation. Um, but we we uh, we have some somewhat of a modest claim. Um, we we don't claim that um, Anglo Catholic socialism or whatever is its own kind of proprietary socialism that simply by engaging in these kind of thought patterns or studying these figures uh, that amounts to necessarily amounts to um, real world praxis. Rather, we're, we're trying to uh, gain exposure for the fact that our tradition does actually have its own kind of internal uh, radicalism and uh, 
back to that kind of practical element of parish ministry brings some kind of material analysis to what might seem like mundane uh, features of parishes because they are institutions just like anything else and they are bound up in place and time uh, just like everything else is and yet we don't always uh, consider them that way uh, if, that, if that makes sense in terms of negotiating it yeah, I think it does make sense. Um, putting it out like that, uh, I think, kind of helps. Uh, I don't know, answer Dean's question, <laughs> assuage any any fears <laughs> that might still be there. Um, maybe to get at it a little bit deeper, though, uh, a question that's I think kind of related to this at its core is that the hour has this really particular aesthetic to it that I I think is really fascinating. And Caleb, you wrote an essay about it. Um, I guess in the previous issue, I think that's when it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that uh, the hour takes up this like very interesting modernist aesthetic to parse out a real, yeah, I don't know. I'm just gonna keep saying the word modernism over and over again, but yeah. to parse out a real particular modernism. That's not just like, uh, that's not radical orthodoxy. That's, that's kind of cutting against some of that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Would you mind just talking about a little bit of that, uh, that aesthetic in the magazine and how it might relate to the larger conversation? Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, that was a really fun essay to write a lot going on in it. Like, so I'm glad that, uh, you got some, Got some attention, but uh, yeah, I think the the background of that essay um, there, you know, Mark Fisher, I'm sure you all are familiar with him. He has that theme, like the cancellation of the future. He'll talk about how uh, like pop culture now is just this constant repetition of nostalgia, which is just kind of this uh, this uncomfortable disavow the fact that there can be nothing new anymore so we just like repackage our own uh, experiences and i was trying to find a way to defend our references to the past both in terms of like the figures we draw from uh and also the aesthetic i wanted to i wanted to see if there was a way that i could salvage some kind of radicalism um by being by being rooted in the past to say, so as to say, while there obviously are, there's tons of truth to uh, like, whether it's Mark Fisher's point or I'm, I reference Frederick Jameson in that essay itself. He's talking about um, parody and pastiche and et cetera. Uh, there's so much that rings true with that critique. I wanted to basically save our own magazine from it. And the essay was basically my attempt at doing that. Uh, so in terms of the aesthetic itself, yeah, I mean, there's Tony and I were big kind of design geeks on this stuff. And we spent a lot of time sharing like Instagram DMS of old book covers and like, like penguin classics from the sixties and art nouveau stuff and all this nerdery, uh, that was fantastic. But we, yeah, a lot of it, a lot of the references come from a similar time that like Vida Dutton Scudder would have been writing or R.H. Tawney. This is very much in a kind of uh, first half of the 20th century slash mid-century kind of thing, which is where Kenneth Leach would have been active as well. And I, I, I guess with the essay uh, connected to the aesthetic, um, I, I wanted to suggest that we're still in enough of the same world as, again, people like Kenneth Leach or R.H. Tawney uh, or Vida Dutton Scudder. Uh, we're still in enough of the same world that not only are their insights still relevant, um, but the aesthetic, the forward-looking modernism of, of those, of those uh, references are also still re relevant. There's an irony uh, that we talked about, Tony and I talked about a lot at the beginning. Um, most kind of, at least in the Episcopal Anglican scene, most church publications or outfits, they all have kind of uh, stock photography of Gothic cathedrals. And it's really funny that like uh, no one ever, you know, uh, throws shade on them for, for being, uh, purely nostalgic and yet uh you're almost more likely to get that critique if you go with something from like the 50s or 60s and so i'm rambling here uh but yeah i i basically wanted to show with the very the look of the magazine that 
it's not just purely uh, retrospective or antiquarian, uh, like a Gothic um, architecture piece, but it's, it's modernist and modernist is now. We don't actually have to, we don't necessarily have to pretend that we're in this purely postmodern kind of pastiche thing. We can still actually recover a real sense of material conditions, a real sense of design, clarity, uh, and movement, et cetera. If that makes sense? If, if, if I might, uh, Caleb is, is always delightfully too modest to point out that when we first started constructing the website, I was, I was doing it on my own. And uh, I had right there on the front page uh, in black and white, a, a film photograph I took of, of some statues at the Notre Dame, right? So like peak Gothic Cathedral, that was, <laughs> that was the aesthetic that I was going for. I even like tossed up a, a, a Latin blog title um, and Caleb came up with uh, this this image of Vita Scudder with these like pink rays going off of her, and uh, it was absolutely the right choice to go that way. And speaking of Vita uh, Dutton Scudder, uh, I'm and, and going back to this modernism thing, we we tr have tried all the time not to um, indulge in some knee jerk anti modernism. Uh, in point of fact, when you when I've been reading, rereading uh, Vida's big book, Socialism and Character, and the the opening several chapters of it is um, a historical retelling of the tale of socialism. It's like these are this is when the socialists came up. This is um, how it failed. This is the direction we're going, et cetera. It's it's a it's a tale of movement. And Caleb and I have always been struck about how with modernism you you get the possibility of action whereas with a, a closed off history or maybe a, a an extraordinarily low um anthropology so to speak what you get is, is a kind of like anti-action um you're, you're frozen in a particular time or, or place and things can't move forward things can't actively be transformed and done um and we we want to not go that route. In my essay, I uh, deal with John Berger a lot. I always, I have to plug John Berger. Um, I read him constantly and everyone should. He's amazing. But he has this great line in an essay uh, on Walter Benjamin, where he says that the antiquarian and the revolutionary uh, both have one major thing in common, which is a rejection of the present as given. And I'm like, that, I've always loved that line. Because uh, temperamentally, I, I have a kind of antiquarian bench just in terms of my personality. But I just love that line, and it really gets at uh, the possibility of the magazine and what we're trying to do. Yeah, it's so cool to hear you guys talk about that. I think, you know, there there is a lot of talk about uh, the aesthetics of kind of the burgeoning socialist movement in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. And, you know, it's like uh, Jacobin, love it or hate it. It's a magazine that looks very good, <laughs> no matter what anybody thinks about it. And uh, I appreciate that about the hour, too, that there is this kind of, um, you know, there's a, a vision to it that is more than just uh, brute content or, or something, even though the content is is very good. It's like it's trying to kind of invite you into, I don't know, a, a lot of different things all at once. And I think that's really neat. Um yeah, it's something Matt and I appreciate, too, about like G's magazine, which we spend a lot of time chatting with those folks. This is kind of artistic vision that uh, is doing something bigger. Um, well, I want to uh, sort of just maybe steer us in a weird direction to talk a little bit more about Kenneth Leach. You've brought him up a few times and uh, earlier you mentioned we might get to him. So I think, yes, let's get to him. Uh, we can. I know Matt really wants to talk about uh, Angel Nalo uh, Bega's essay, and we are definitely going to do that. <laughs> but I think uh, it's important to uh, pull this out since you've been steering us there. So in the most recent issue of the hour, you're focusing on uh, exploring this character, uh, Kenneth Leach, who's in the Anglo-Catholic tradition and the Marxist tradition. And the Leach essay is really fascinating uh, that you that you guys have republished and so on. Can you tell us a little bit about Kenneth Leach and what is it that made you want to plan an entire issue around him as a person? Uh, Ken Kenneth Leach um, was a was a, a priest and a theologian, uh, but uh, of the unprofessional variety uh, in, in a way, and and uh, and also writer on spirituality. Uh, 
who only recently passed away, I believe in 2015. Um, and he was converted actually to Ang Anglican socialism as a teenager when he uh, heard an anti-apartheid, anti-racist uh, speech given by a member of the community of the resurrection from South Africa. And uh, some of the earliest work that Kenneth Leach did, what um, as far as like in the church and activism was uh, start a group called the Jubilee Group in the in the 70s, I believe, it may have been late 60s, somewhere around there. Uh, and he started it actually with Rowan Williams, uh, who almost everyone will certainly have heard of. And uh, and they actually went down to South Africa to to help organize anti-apartheid work uh, and do radical stuff down there. And in time, uh, Leach wrote about urban ministry, about uh, anti-racism. Uh, he wrote in favor of uh, inclusion of LGBTQ people. He uh, addressed things at a time when it was not, I really don't want to say fashionable because I don't want to diminish the, the fact that it's come to have more um, of, 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 of acceptance and it's not fashionable, but like before it was a, a more mainstream dialogue in certain circles that, that we might be familiar with. He was writing about those things uh, pretty early on. And through the Jubilee group, uh, he inspired a great deal of people uh, to continue the mantle, but uh, of, of Anglo-Catholic socialism, right? But you point, you ask uh, about the essay that we included, that essay um, written over 30 years ago, basically says that there isn't um, anything recognizable as a significant Anglo-Catholicism anymore anyway. Um, what he's trying to do is renew a vision that has been lost a bit. Um, and that's, he became a, a kind of like uh, uh, a scribe who brings out of the storehouse things old and new to, to pull on a, a biblical passage and, and uh, a revival of interest in the, the OG sources comes in large degree from him. Yeah, I would just I would say that Leach is one of the few like intermediate bridges between like our present day and kind of the the early 20th century to the post-war period. Like I can't think of an I can't think of very many other people besides him that would have been kind of carrying the torch, you know, through the 70s into like the rise of neoliberalism and Thatcher because which he also wrote about uh, very explicitly. He was kind of a, uh, a lone, a lone ranger. In that. Well, it's so cool to hear you guys pull some of these, um, I don't know, some of these folks out of, out of the Anglo-Catholic tradition that, uh, I don't know, I, I hadn't heard of at least. <laughs> I'm sure, um, I are new to other people as well. Just, um, you know, reclaiming some of the, the folks that, you know, might've otherwise been ignored is such a powerful thing, especially, I mean, um, I don't know, Episcopalianism, like the Episcopal Church in the United States can seem uh, sometimes very apolitical or at least uh, or, or on the side of uh, on the side of empire sometimes. So to, to pull out the, the folks that can speak to the contrary is always very powerful. Um, yeah, because yeah, we, we don't even know who they are. I mean, that, that's, that's, yeah. a part, that's a part of uh, that's, that's one of the side goals of the magazine. Like our biggest one of our ongoing rants is that most of these books are out of print. Like you have to be some geek on a books like me and Tony, like paying 18 bucks for shipping and $3 for the actual book from some UK place. Like we haven't even, we being Anglicans or Episcopalians, we haven't even kept up uh, our own exposure to this. And so it's kind of, it's, it's like digging around in the closet and finding out that there's rad stuff that you didn't know was there. Uh, you, you, you mentioned uh, that it, it uh, often seems like we're on the side of the empire. And that's absolutely the case. And, and a lot of the people in the, the circles that we're trying to draw from uh, saw that and were very much against it. I, n I never want to give the impression that uh, the, the socialists were um, ever terribly mainstream. It's always been a minority tradition, <laughs> um, even within Anglo-Catholicism, let alone within the Church of England. Um, one thing that was a huge surprise to me, actually, going back and reading the sources, is how many of even the relatively conservative side of these groups were violently anti-imperialist. Um, you will get extraordinarily um, strong protests against what uh, 
uh, England was doing in the Boer Wars, for instance, um, uh, and and all kinds of calling out of Cecil Rhodes and and figures of the time, right, uh, and uh, and whole pamphlets against imperialism because the the connection between capitalism and imperialism was being made, right, uh, right, uh, even earlier, and they accepted it, and that connected with, and I, I go back to this, connected with their um, antagonistic stance to the state meant that they felt free to assert the independence of the church from supporting the political and economic system as it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. You know, I'm, I'm getting more excited about being Episcopalian the more you all talk. Um, getting really excited about it. Um, you know, uh, speaking of, of some of these um, you know, like the countercurrents, the the alternative stories um, that are the rad stuff in the closet that that you, you find. Um, something that really uh, sticks out to me from the hour, I think it's from again from the last issue, is one of my favorite episodes. Er, episodes, oh my god, one of my favorite essays <laughs> well published by Angel Nelobega called um, "Polly Murray Anti Blackness in the Episcopal Church," and I I love it for a lot of reasons, but. Um, it's like a very cool, if you haven't read it, it's a very cool personal essay that gets at some of the, like some of these complexities and contradictions that we're bringing up here with like the, the modern tradition, um, uh, of, of Episcopalianism or, uh, Anglo-Catholicism, whichever word we want to use at the moment. But I want to read this quick excerpt from it that I think is really cool. So Angel writes, the Episcopal church has a history that has historically been aligned with power. It's the church of presidents and slave owners, but it's also the church of laborers and immigrants and working class people. It's a place where experiences and identities converge. It's a place where many historically black congregations are closing while white parishes have millions in endowments. It's a place where some people are perfectly content with status quo and where some people are prayerfully fighting for justice in an unjust world. And then she goes on to write, we cannot have a beloved community if we can't reckon with the reality of the church and the inequities present. And to me, uh, her essay was a really sobering signpost for outlining the multitudes that are contained within the Anglo-Catholic tradition, the good and the bad. So I, I don't know, kind of going back to that sense of like the, the modernism that's not necessarily, uh, you know, longing for the past, um, but uh, with the present, I don't know, like, can you talk a little bit about the inclusion of Angel's essay and, and maybe um, the way that um, I'm, like Kenneth Leach and others have, have led you to thinking through the contradictions within uh, the Anglo-Catholic tradition? Yeah, uh, Angel, Angel wrote that um, at my behest, I, I contacted them simply to ask for any piece, I, I didn't have an explicit um, topic that 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 I wanted I wanted them to cover. Uh, she was the the one that chose that topic, and and I was really excited about it. And it's an excellent essay. And I, and hearing the the stories of people has actually been an important part of the hour. And I don't even know that that initially we were trying to do that, but. Um, there are stories, uh, memoirs in almost every one of the issues uh, that I'm thinking of off the top of my head. And uh, and Angel, it would make sense since she's writing for um, a socialist Catholic uh, magazine, right? Pulled from her experience of first encountering um, Polly Murray, uh, and one of the earliest women ordained to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church, and Marx. She picked up a, a Marx Engels reader and a book by Polly Murray at a bookstore at the same time. And so they always just sort of belong together for her. <laughs> um, and the the story of, of how that has played out in their experience in the church was, was fascinating. I'm really excited to have been able to publish it. Yeah, it's really cool, too. Uh, I mean, we have to have uh, Angel on, I guess, tell us a lot more about the essay <laughs> in their own words. But... Um, I think it's just a, a cool testament to what the hour is exploring to hear you talk about how it's evolving and maybe discovering things uh, about it as you go and being willing to have a, a vision that's, you know, clear in some ways, uh, clear in terms of what you've been talking about, trying to explore this kind of uh, Anglo-Catholic socialist tradition, but plastic enough also to to allow itself to be surprised by that uh, and especially as as editors being able to open yourselves up to that a little bit 
Um, maybe talk to us a little bit more about that. You know, I think Matt and I, we started this podcast as a way of maybe contributing something, you know, on the Christian left to, to the world of media or whatever in our own modest way. Uh, but we're really intrigued by other efforts to do that, too. I mentioned G's. Uh, we really love what's going on at uh, The Bias and so on. And the hour just seems like one of those, uh, another one of those really lovely little um, mushrooms, I guess, that's kind of popping up in the rain of <laughs> whatever socialism that's that's slowly pouring down over the U.S. and and uh, North America generally. The mushroom in the socialism rain. That's <laughs> yeah, love. that's how many meta. That's awesome. Yeah, I borrowed it from Ernesto Cardinal. So as always, uh, I'm not the poet for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, j- just tell us a little bit more about how that project has developed over time and maybe what you guys have discovered as as editors kind of shepherding that project. Well, one thing, Tony briefly referenced this earlier. Um, we, we've we've loved all the stuff that we've we've published. Uh, it has been at times difficult uh, to to get the pieces that we are not the piece that we're looking for or the the voice that we're looking for. And I think we were, we suspected that uh, as a possibility at the beginning, um, but that that was one thing that I think has surprised slash been confirmed uh, in our experience. In that, uh, it confirms why we like to exist and why we want to keep going because uh, we are providing uh, a perspective that's not otherwise available. Um, but we're also, I think, we're aware that it's a it's a work in progress to sort of mine this out and figure out what it might look like uh, to to be socialists, uh, to be Anglicans, and however those two things relate. Is that fair, Tony? Yeah, absolutely. I I I want to underscore how unambitious our origins really were. We we were under absolutely no illusions or or fantasies that we're going to come in and and like. Um, do something for the left movement per se. Um, <laughs> um, we we in fact started it mostly because of the limits that we saw in available venues to write practical stuff for the church. Um, the the we were dissatisfied with the broad editorial stances that allowed all sorts of things to slip through the cracks, and and we just wanted to be able to write. Um, and 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 share material that would help the church understand a bit more about um, how it can minister and understand it in a in a deeper, more material level. All right. So so in the in the very first uh, issue, we we sort of collected a theme around the daily office, and I wrote an essay about highways essentially, um, because what I wanted to look at was. If we want to have a, a daily office, a morning prayer, an evening prayer, or both at a parish, and we and we think that we should, what is it that makes it difficult for us to do this um, right now? Because it's not it's not very common. Most ways of approaching that question tend to focus on the perceived limitations of the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. Right? Uh, what it needs to do is is be more in keeping with the 1928 or the 1662 or you know X, whatever number right whatever former edition the problem is something inherent in in the liturgy the liturgy is the problem if we could just fix that then people would be pouring in and the daily office would be happening um but i pointed out that uh, if you're going to do a daily office in a church um people need to be able to get to it at a time when that can happen and in a world where uh, we push both priests and parishioners out into the suburbs, for instance, and and have people ship in in their cars to go to church, it's going to be really difficult to sustain a devotional practice that way when you need to drive in and then drive off to work. Um, and so I just talked about the way that the highways were put in and the limitations that they put on our ability to do corporate worship. Um, and it's not to say that everyone has to instantly move in to uh, you know, walking distance of their parish. That would be great. But that would, again, be approaching the issue as if it's the individual's fault that we've ordered an entire society and infrastructure around a particular way of being. Right. We we have literally built 
highways, infrastructures. We we require that people have cars to get around, et cetera. Uh, throwing the individual uh, into blame for that state of being is just kind of a neoliberal way of approaching the real issue. And what I tried to do was suggest that uh, uh, something deeper is going on. And I didn't have a solution offhand, but I think that before you can even begin to have a reasonable conversation about how to have a daily office in your parish, you need to have a more concrete understanding of the situation that is actually in place. I think that's such a cool insight. In the most recent issue of uh, of the hour, you have an essay called Where Spiritual Counsel and Socialism Meet, where you you know kind of rehash some of what you just said here. But I think something that you say in it that's really profound is just that capitalism makes it really hard to be a Christian person. And uh it's such a it's such a um, glaringly obvious thing when you really think about it. Like you know, like, well, why why is it so hard to get to morning prayer or something? Well, it's because the the uh, the neoliberalization of um, of cities, of cars, of urban sprawl, all of these reasons, right? And uh, it wouldn't uh, it would not appear obvious, I think, to um, to many even that that that's the problem. You know, you're right. The the blame always gets put on the. The book of common prayer or whatever but really it's just like uh capitalism is so far deteriorated our cities that it's even difficult to make it to our church in a reasonable amount of time to like you know pray the office or whatever or find child care or like bring your kid with you who knows man but capitalism makes all these things extremely unlivable um something that dean and i've said in the podcast before that i think i mean works here too is that socialism makes it more livable right <laughs> think about how much easier it would be to be a to be a christian if uh if uh you know we had a socialist political economy it'd be a whole a whole other story we'd have to think a lot less um uh we, we wouldn't have to think so much about like um you know should we actually give money to this person on the street or not or whatever you know it'd be a lot of these questions would be answered for us and wouldn't that be nice well i was, I was going to add you know not only what you just said but on tony like his his essay from the first issue not only was there that macro uh, insight about the way that urban planning has happened, but uh, much more uh, closer to home in terms of, uh, I'm, a, I'm a priest already, Tony's kind of on that track. Uh, Tony also mentioned, I believe in that essay, that uh, for a long time, back in the, back in the olden days, uh, Episcopal churches, many of them had rectories. And that's not just, uh, a pra that, that, those were not just practical uh, things that, you know, the priests need a place to live, they presupposed a certain kind of relationship to the devotional lives of the churches. And so, yes, uh, the way that urban planning changed over the 20th century with sprawl and stuff, that was obviously a factor, but churches actively sold their rectories. You know, so Tony also mentioned that, like, there were, there were, there were elements where our churches could have actually acted as a bulwark against uh, some of those forces, but instead we made the conscious decision to uh, implicate ourselves in them. The, this, there's, a, there's a story in the book that I was reading about uh, what to do about moving between cures, if you're a priest, moving to a new parish when you run up against an issue in the parish you are currently in. The idea being that if I can just change my external circumstance, then the problem will go away. Um, and there's a lot of literature in the in the early desert monastics that talk about this, if you can believe it or not. Um, and I, I share an example of that. What they focus on is stability as the way of facilitating engagement with what is really going on. And I, I, I actually agree with, with that basic insight. But what I was struck by was thinking about how many of my friends and family have had to move regularly, oftentimes every single year of their adulthood because of the external political and economic forces in their life, right? They've got to go to a new place because their their debt is getting over their head or their landlord raised their rent or their, you know, all these sorts of things. They're always moving. And if if I were to just come at them as someone training for the priesthood, right, and, and hopefully one day being a priest, and and giving spiritual counsel. If I were to just jump into a situation like that, saying, oh, well, you need to have more stability in your life, I'd be missing an entire aspect of what's going on. And in so doing, I wouldn't just be um, being a jerk. I would be I would be failing to provide the the type of 
care and insight that could actually allow them to go deeper into their spiritual life in whatever circumstance they are currently in. And so that's what had me thinking about it. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you say that. I guess I mentioned uh, Ernesto Cardinal already, so I'll mention him again. Um, but I was reading, uh, uh, for folks that don't know, he was a revolutionary priest in Nicaragua, and he took a famous trip to uh, Cuba when he was kind of on his revolutionary journey. And in Nicaragua, he lived in this, um, I don't know, calling it an intentional community is not doing it justice, <laughs> but uh, he lived in a community of, of peasants and artists in a, an island archipelago, you know, where they, they really tried to practice this kind of utopian um, socialist model, basically, in the, in the shell of a very brutal dictatorship. So anyway, he's in, he tells a story about being in Cuba, and he has to sit down with a bunch of Marxists and they're like asking him what he does in Nicaragua. And he starts explaining and he's like, yeah, you know, where, where we live, like there's no mine and yours. It's this kind of uh, place where we live free from from that sort of desire. Uh, we all live in, in this kind of union together. And then he sort of pauses in his reflections uh, and he says it suddenly strikes him that like it's absurd to try to explain that to a person who lives in a society that's moving towards socialism because, like, they already get it. <laughs> and, uh, he he closes with this quote that I remember from uh, John Chrysostom where he says, uh, if cities were Christians, monasteries would be unnecessary. And I love that as this kind of picture of, you know, if uh, uh, if the society we lived in was truly equitably sharing in the socialist way, then this seemingly radical experiment, you know, in the islands of Nicaragua wouldn't actually be that radical at all. And I don't know if that tracks with what you're at, but uh, it just seems to me like you're asking exactly the right question, or at least the interesting one for Christians on the left, which is like, I don't know, maybe if our societies were different, uh, being a Christian wouldn't be so frustrating <laughs> all the time or confusing or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that points to um, to me. I'm still trying to think this out in my head. I, I'm I'm inconclusive on this, but like, I I think it's I think it's easy for Christians on the left to precisely because uh, we're Christians, we can think about uh, socialist aspirations automatically as like utopian or uh, eschatological uh, type desires. And um, I think it's actually helpful to think about uh, socialist goals much more mundane. Just like there's there's a baseline. Uh, I actually think that a lot of the things that uh, uh, are involved in socialism are just baseline, like natural obligations to human beings, right? Like you don't even have to be a Christian uh, to be under certain obligations to other people as people. Uh, we don't necessarily add a whole lot to that as Christians qua Christians. And so I think, yeah, I think it's to, to frame the question of what world, what kind of world would make it easier to be Christian? Uh, I think it, it relocates the question less in terms of like, oh, well, is it the kingdom of God or something like that? All obviously a, a, a necessary object of of um of thought but i don't think it's it i don't think it necessarily follows that we have to assume that we that we have to talk about the kingdom of god every time we talk about socialist aspirations yeah it's a good note um you know you don't want to make it so otherworldly that's great well we're kind of coming to the end of the hour here and i don't want to keep you all too long but i do want to ask one more big question for you <laughs> and if i don't know who knows if you can answer it it's uh it might be it might be too uh too big but anyways the uh the anglo-catholic tradition in the united states at least is in i think in some kind of like weird transformation in membership and clergy and probably all, also it's politics um the i don't know clergy is skewing younger membership is skewing older all kinds of like weird things going on and uh, if I'm to believe my insular Twitter bubble, there's also some kind of resurgence of Christian socialism amongst, uh, I don't know, Anglo-Catholic types. And uh, I mean, you know, the, the hour is maybe uh, the receipt for that. But, um, you know, there's more than just the hour going on out there, too. So um, I don't know. Do you think that that's true about any kind of like um, returning Christian socialist moment or, uh, you know, if not, it's OK. You can be honest with me <laughs> and, and dash my hopes. 
But uh, I, I don't know. What do you see on the horizon for uh, these these like kind of Christian socialist movements or people who are you know very interested in this kind of thing again? Oh well, I definitely think there's a moment, um, and, and it's definitely much wider than than the hour. In, in fact, I think that we're relative to other things going on, pretty insignificant, um, small rag that uh, a really niche group of people are somewhat into, right? Um, but so we came to be right around the same time that the bias came to be, um, the, right around the same time that G's came to be, right around the same time as Gary Dorian released a gigantic multi-billion page work on the origins of Christian socialism, um, right when Eugene McCarraher collected um, decades and decades of work into a you know 600-page book on socialism. It's uh, there's some kind of moment, something going on in the air. Um, but for me, it feels a bit tentative, a, a bit uh, early to draw conclusions about where it might go, at least in the U.S. That's just my impression, and maybe it's it's some terrible cynicism on my part. Uh, I, I'm just kind of nervous and reticent, uh, um, hopeful about where it could go, but too early to call in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I would just add this might be a this might sound a little bit off off the uh, track here, but um, I don't think it's cynical. In order before we could see like an identifiable movement, et cetera, uh, beyond just certain people or certain outfits like us, uh, we published in our recent issue uh, an essay on clergy age, like the clergy age gap. Like there are so many uh, contradictions and strange forces that will have to be settled out in the coming years and decades in our church specifically uh, that are very much bound up in the political alignment of our church. Um, I, I, would de- I would definitely say that to emphasize mm. the tentative note that Tony mentioned. And, and, and as far as uh, online, I mean, uh, you're not wrong. It does seem like there's um, uh, uh, a, a, a group, at least on Twitter, right, of, of people who would consider themselves both Anglican and socialist. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure yet to what extent that is. Th- th- there's a connection between the two. You know what I mean? They are they are both at the same time. But as far as the the theoretical connection between socialism and Christianity, um, that that I've been able to see in the sources that I've been trying to draw on and learn from. I, I I don't know if 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 that's fully what's going on. Um, if people are completely on board with a, an active program of socialism, or if they are just sick to death of being beat up by capitalism and are reaching out for something that uh, they believe can transform that situation. I, I guess I'm I'm not entirely sure yet. All right. Well, I'll take the tentativeness of your answers. Um, that sounds good. <laughs> it's a, definitely a safe bet. Um, I would probably be more suspicious of you both if you both came out really strongly <laughs> saying that, yeah, it's it's here. Um, cool. Well, uh, at the end of the show here, do you guys want to plug uh, The Hour, tell people where to find it? Yeah, thehourmag.com is our relatively new website that's hopefully a bit more uh, intuitive and user-friendly. You'll find the PDF downloads of our issues, and uh, we also publish the individual essays as just plain text on our website as like blog posts that are just easier for sharing and reading online. That's uh, our website. Yeah, that's, that's the website. Um, it, the, there's a, there's a group that's not directly connected with the hour in any way, but there's a new um, Episcopal caucus in the DSA. Um, if people are looking to get connected to a group um that that uh, is really just starting and and trying to feel things out, uh, but it exists is is uh, is a thing that I would that would I would point out. But that really has nothing to do with the hour um, in in any active sense. I, I just wanted to throw that in maybe to the previous bit about uh, um, the moment. You know what I mean? Like uh, like is there something going on? It certainly seems like there is. Yeah, it's a good plug. Just the same. I appreciate both of them actually. Uh, I think that uh, if you reach out to the religious socialism folks at DSA, they'll point you toward the Episcopal Episcopal Caucus. Um, cool. Well, it was really great to hear from you both about the hour and kind of get your analysis on all these uh, these hot uh, Anglo-Catholic uh, <laughs> debates and ideas. 
uh, yeah, we really appreciate you being on. Really Thank genuinely you. appreciate you asking us on. Uh, you're you do a great work. Love your show. Um, yeah. And, uh, it, it's nice to be uh, asked on to a podcast. <laughs> well, we'll do it again in the future. Sure. Thank yeah, you. yeah, of course. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. If you support us there, you get all kinds of cool things like uh, a sticker or access to our uh, Discord channel where we're always talking about, I don't know, whatever <laughs> stuff. It's great, Cedric though. Robinson it's great. lately. Yeah, Cedric Robinson lately. Um, I don't know. I'll po- I posted something about uh, Catholic time machines the other right, day right. that nobody really <laughs> talked to me about, which is fair. I did I read it. I read the Wikipedia either. article on it. Yeah, man. Isn't the Chronovisor wild? It I is wild. It. Okay, you can also get access to things like uh, our, our Behind the Paywall Patreon podcast, The Lock-In, which is also fun, where we do more goofy stuff. Um, and uh, we're going to go record it right now, so you'll have to excuse us. Um, our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong, and our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have